Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since the early days of the public internet, Big Think has curated more than 10,000 surprising, brain-bending, significant ideas and shared them through video, text, and social media. The Think Again podcast remixes this formula, surprising me and my guests with conversation topics we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I am about to die of literary fan nerddom because I'm sitting here with novelist, essayist, poet, and as of late, no, not as of late, for many years apparently, comic book writer, but only recently with an illustrator uh, other than herself, Margaret Atwood. She's also got some really funny mini comics on her website about bad interviews, so uh, I'm hoping to uh, not to be the subject of one of those in the future. She's the Booker Prize winning author of The Blind Assassin, Oryx and Crake, The Handmaid's Tale, and about 40 other beloved books. Her latest, Hagseed, is a complete reimagining of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Welcome to Think Again, Margaret. Thank you. Um, so, Bob Dylan, Nobel laureate, what do, you, what do you think of that? Should it have been Leonard Cohen? Should it have been a writer of books? Well, I think right now at this moment in time, it is a, a little love letter sent by Sweden to America in America's hour of need. Uh, because a lot of people in Europe are looking at America and they're, and they're saying, what are you doing in this election thing that you're what, what are you doing to yourselves? Why are you tearing yourselves apart? Why are you dragging yourselves down into the mud in this way? Right. And we are just reminding you through Bob Dylan that you can be better. Uh, this is a person who in the day, you know, was singing about more optimism, more empathy, more different points of view. Right. Uh, so I think what, what this message is saying is, we still have faith in you, America. Go back to your better selves. Um, because the Swedes love to sing. They're all very musical. They learn in the school, and at the end of a dinner party, they will all burst into song. Is this so? And, is this oh, yes, it is true? actually true. The yeah. Swedes love to sing. The Swedes love to <laughs> sing. Okay. They love to sing. All right. Because I have, yeah, like I was, you know, saying before we started that I have a number of friends who are griping strangely about and sort of getting into Talmudic arguments about what is literature, what is They're not, not literature. They're not taking the broad view. Right. One of the most widely known, well-known, and beloved figures in Sweden was the singer-songwriter called Bellman. Okay. And uh, Bellman. Bellman, yeah, look it up. So, so everybody knows this, and for a Swedish person, it would not be hugely controversial to say such a person made a big contribution to the national literature gotcha. through the singing songwriting. So this there is, is, yeah, this I guess is not a big stretch. There's a bardic tradition going back, back very far in which Absolutely. that is literature, yeah. you know, and literature could be sung. For certainly. sure, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, now then you can argue about the, the details, but, but the overview, I would say, is those two things. America, you can be better, and we in Sweden have a tradition in which this is a very important figure. The sure. singer-songwriter is a very important figure. Sure. Let's get on, let's move on to your book, your new book, Hagseed, uh, which is part of the Hogarth Shakespeare series in which writers who are known for other work are rewriting Shakespeare plays in a way. The, so yours is based on The Tempest, which is a, a strange play, isn't it? It's a very strange play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So How did is, you? Yeah. Like I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I maybe you could say a bit more about what that means to you. It's strange. All right. So Shakespeare wrote two plays in which supernatural beings other than ghosts are figuring. Okay. One of them is A Midsummer Night's Dream, which uses Oberon and Titania and Puck as part of their strangeness, but they're mostly doing comic things and messing up people's heads, ha, 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 <laughs> and then unmessing them at the end. Right. Because it's a comedy. They're like trolls from the No, they're the not fairy like world. trolls. Well, they're, I mean trolls in the sense of the internet, like they're just kind of oh, screwing with people, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that kind of trolls. Uh, and sometimes by mistake. So Puck puts the magic juice in the wrong people's eyes and they right, right. <laughs> get all messed up. So yes, and and the other one is The Tempest, a, a late Shakespeare. Right. And frequently in late Shakespeare, he takes motifs that he carried through to a logical conclusion, such as the revenge motif. Right. Hamlet is a revenge play. It ends with a big pile of dead bodies, including Hamlet's. Right. Doesn't work out so well. And does them over again, but has them come out happily or better. Mm-hmm. So The Tempest is a revenge play okay. that stops its revenge about three-quarters of the way through when, when he could easily have killed all of his enemies or rendered them permanently mad. Yeah. He changes his mind, and he changes his mind through the interve intervention of a non-human character called Ariel. Right. So basically Ariel says, you should really feel sorry for these people, they're suffering so much, and Shakespeare kind of pops out of his revenge trance and says, oh, you think so? <laughs> right. Oh, well, yeah, maybe I should. Maybe I should forgive them. Yeah. And, and he forgives them. That's interesting. But, so it's but there are a lot of questions about that moment, too, because one of the people he forgives says nothing for the rest of the play. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. Antonio. He doesn't say, I'm your brother. He doesn't say anything. Yeah. He doesn't utter a syllable. So what do we think he's thinking at that moment? I'll get you back later, or I'm really, right. uh, this is the end of me, or what is he thinking? We don't know. I mean, I think for me what is also so strange about The Tempest, and then let's segue maybe into how, to how you've transformed that in, in Hagseed, is that you're calling it a revenge play, and I get that, but at the same time, there are so many other significant plot lines going on. And in Shakespeare, a lot of things go on at once. But they I mean, do. compared to something like Macbeth or Hamlet, where I feel like the through line is pretty clean, here it seems like you have multiple, almost well, it's, equally it's, important it's things going on. It's revenge plus, but it's also three different levels of power struggle and, and control. Right. So Prospero has been deposed from power, but now he's got power over the island. Right. His enemies have assumed power 
back in the non-island world, and now they lack power. And there's quite a lot of talk about amongst them about how they would run this island if it were theirs. Right. Uh, right. So it is that Machiavellian, Tudorian conversation that goes on. How should a ruler rule? And Prospero has gotten into the trouble he's gotten into because he wasn't good as a ruler. He was the duke, but he delegated. And he delegated to Antonio, and Antonio then usurped the power. Right. And then at the third level, it's Caliban and his two cronies. And they are intent on seizing power by murdering Prospero, after which they're going to rape Miranda. Right. And that is played as a kind of how shall we say, bungling level because they, they don't get, they don't carry it off. Right, right, <laughs> they right. Get very distracted. Well, they're, they're drunk. Well, let us add that Trinculo in. Trinculo and... Uh, Trinculo and Stefano. Stefano, right. And Caliban yeah. by that time is also drunk as, because uh, they have found this big vat of liquor on the shore and they're heavily into it. So they, they are a parody of the power struggle that's going on in the higher levels of, of society. Right. So it is about power, but it's also about revenge. So Prospero wants his revenge. Caliban wants his revenge. Right. And in the middle, the enemies of Prospero are now planning to murder the king of Naples, who helped Antonio get rid of Prospero. Right. So that is sort of betrayal at the next level. So he's betrayed his brother, now he's going to betray his ally. And therefore, it's, that part is going to be a revenge on the king of Naples for having participated in the plot against Prospero in the first place. But Prospero wants it to come out better <laughs> than that. Uh, he wants Miranda to marry the son of the king who tossed him over. Right. And if that happens, then all will be well because Naples and Milan will be friends Prospero will be back in his proper place as Duke. Miranda's future will be assured, and Antonio will be question mark. <laughs> we don't know. Right. So I think that's about as succinctly, like I wasn't going to ask you to sum up that plot because it's such it's a, a complicated It's a pretty good sum up. Yeah, he does plot, it all with the help of his special <laughs> effects guy, Ariel. Right. And uh, along the way, there are some of the best speeches in Shakespeare, of course, which is one reason people love it. Yes. Other big question mark is this, and I put it to you as a person who lives in New York in the 21st century. Here you are, about to get back on the boat with the guy who tried to murder you and hasn't said a word after you've forgiven him. Right. And you have some weapons, and your weapons are your magic books and your magic staff and your magic garment and your magic staff and your magic helper called Ariel. And without those things, you could never have pulled any of this off. In fact, without these things, you would have been murdered some time ago by Caliban. You're about to get back on the boat. You throw away all of those things. Would you do that? Well, I'm not Prospero, so Prospero does it. So the question is why? And for that, we'd have to look to Prospero, I guess. I mean... No, no. Answer the question. <laughs> Tell me if you would have done it. I suppose not. I suppose not too. No, I certainly would I not have done it. I don't think you would have either. Yeah. No, I would not have done it. Yeah. So but why, why does Prospero do Why it? does he do it? He must feel that his new alliance with the King of Naples is going to keep him safe. Mm -hmm. That's what he must think. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Either that or less likely he's as naive as Antonio thought he was in, in the, the beginning. In the first place. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, one or the other. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, so in your retelling, you opt for the first option in a sense. You basically, you make it such that the Prospero, who is named... Um, Felix. Felix, right? Luck, it means, yes. It means... It means uh, Happiness. Yeah. yeah, it means the same thing as Prospero, basically. Right. Okay. That he has enough on his enemies that there's really there's no way that they can get to. He has the dirt on them. He's, yeah. You know. Yeah. In in my rendition, as Prospero has the dirt on Antonio and the brother of the King of Naples, he says, "At this time, I will tell no tales." In right. other words, I could, I could, if I wanted to, and if I do, you're going to get your head chopped off. Right. Uh, which seems to me also a risky thing. Uh, but at that moment of forgiveness, it probably would be counterindicated to say, and by the way, your brother was trying to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so in, your, in your story, and I, won't, I don't want to retell the whole plot, I don't want to give too much away, but basically Felix is the artistic director of a regional theater in, what is the name of that town? Macashawag, it Mac- means, means Fox. Okay. And uh, it is not geographically far from an actual festival called the Stratford sure. Festival in Ontario, yeah. in Ontario, which does not yet have a pub called the Imp and Pignut, although it has a lot of similarly named pubs. And my, I prophesy that soon it will have a pub called the <laughs> Imp and Pignut. It ought to have. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Some enterprising uh, lover of pub literature owner should will open do that. It. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, so Felix basically is the victim of a kind of power-seeking coup. Yeah, coup basically a, a putsch. Yeah, he gets su- suddenly kicked out in the way that people are these days. Your personal belongings are in a cardboard box by your car right. and give me your security pass. Yeah, they kick him, really unceremoniously kick him out. That, it's that seems horrifying. to be what happens these days when people get fired. <laughs> yeah, so I've heard this. You have this. to turn over everything and you're just out on the street like bang. That's uh, pretty inhumane. Really. Well, they don't want people in the age of computers. They don't want people messing with corporate right. business from inside. Or the downloading all their emails. Eggs or downloading all their emails <laughs> right, right, right. and taking an axe to their computer <laughs> and doing the things that, that would, of course, immediately occur to a person exactly. in that position. So basically, he's out. So, all, so he, yeah, he's ousted. And then basically a revenge plot unfolds. Um, which involves Shakespeare as an educational tool in prisons. Uh, he becomes a director slash teacher in a prison, and, and I won't, then he I, gets a chance. Then he gets a chance, and in the Tempest, there's a character who never appears on stage, but is very important for the action, and that is Auspicious Star, hmm. because in Shakespeare, it's through the actions of Auspicious Star, and Auspicious Star has brought his enemies within his reach. Right. And benevolent fortune, which they thought of as being a goddess, uh, benevolent fortune is helping out. So auspicious star and benevolent fortune, I, I telescoped into one character in my book, and her name is Estelle. Okay, And right. she is a person who has influence and is helping Felix behind the scenes because she loves the literacy through literature program. <laughs> right, right. So she's raining ba- rays of benevolent influence upon him, and she wears very twinkly earrings. I hadn't picked that up, that that was a, a um, synthesis of them. They're, 
Well, I, I give her all of the symbols of those sure. goddesses, that for makes instance. Sense. She has a, there were a couple of symbols of, of fortune, the goddess, and one was a cornucopia, and the other was a wheel. Okay. A wheel of fortune. So if you look at her jewelry, you'll see it's all represented. <laughs> <laughs> That is subtle. I, sh I, I, I would have. It's not very to. subtle. I think it's kind of, kind of. Um, anyway, it's all there. Okay. Because he wouldn't, Felix himself, as Prospero says, you know, if it weren't for the auspicious star, you know, now is the time when I have to do all this because the auspicious star has brought my enemies within my reach. Right. He apparently his magic is limited in space. He can only get at these people if they're close enough to him. So there was, there's one moment, I mean, there are a couple of moments that I find really interesting in the book. There's one moment I wanted to ask you about. It's a moment when the play, which is the revenge plot, is about to happen. It's Felix's production of The Tempest. Which, with, which is with, done as a video. Right, yeah, so and also an interactive yeah, live. Well, they've, they've made the video, right. and the dignitaries think that everybody's watching this video, but... His particular enemies have been delegated to go and spend time watching it with the actual inmates. And right. that's when it becomes unbeknownst to them and much to their disliking an interactive tempest in which, despite themselves, they are forced to take part. So in this moment, he, Felix, is having significant doubts. And there's an important kind of theme and subplot, which I won't go too deep into, about his lost daughter and him sort of not necessarily being sure of the boundaries between reality and fiction there. But he says, he, he starts to doubt whether, you know, in the play and his own sanity, and he says, Prospero is not crazy. He thinks this, I guess, mm -hmm. or says it aloud yeah. to himself. Prospero is not crazy. Ariel exists. People other than Prospero see him and hear him. The enchantments are real. Hold on to that. Trust the play. But is the play trustworthy? Right. I found that, that moment really interesting and mysterious. And rather than kind of, I mean, I, I could probably sit and try to write an essay on what I think that means. But I'm curious as to what you were getting at there with, but is the play trustworthy? Oh, directors are always saying trust the play. But in a play as ambiguous and as full of open doors, otherwise known as holes in the plot, right. <laughs> as, as the tempest. When you say trust the play, what, what sort of quicksand are you actually standing on? Right. Because the, the character of, of Prospero is quite ambiguous in the, in the text as we have it. People have either done him as, a Gand, as an all-benevolent Gandalf figure on the side of good, or they've done him as a sort of a really angry crabby old man right. who then gets turned around at the aerial moment. There are a number of ways of playing him. As Caliban has become more important in our consciousness, he's sometimes played as, as quite a despot. Right. Uh, although what choice does he have if he lets Caliban out from under the enchantments of goblins? Uh, Caliban's going to murder him, so you could say it's right. self-defense. So how do you play that character? How innocent and unknowing is Miranda? People have edited the play to make her more so. Mm -hmm. But to do that, you've got to take out a couple of her speeches in which she seems to be quite aware of wombs and such like. She seems to have had sex education in school. <laughs> this in is her homeschooling. <laughs> and Prospero says, right. I've, I've taught you a lot of things that girls aren't usually taught. So what kinds of things? Right. And with Shakespeare, you sometimes think, boy, he's deep. 
you know, he's really deep. This has got so many layers, it's so ambiguous. But you could equally say he didn't have a continuity editor. Would you allow this in a sitcom? Let me, well, let me dig into that a little bit. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's arguably one of his last plays that yeah. he wrote by himself. Some people say it is the last one, yeah. right? You know, you are someone who has written over 40 books. This is, you're, we're in speculative territory here, but I'm just wondering, like, in terms of what's happened to the way you think about plotting and character and putting okay, together a story over all those years, like, yeah. can you speculate about where Shakespeare was at? I mean, do, where are, was is he, he losing it or is he, no, he's or not. is it something no, else? No, I mean, like, you find this throughout his plays. You think, okay, we buy this because we just see it enacted before us, but uh, if it had to go through six layers of editors, they probably would have pushed him on it. You think? <laughs> and there are it's, quite a few. So there's not know, some hidden wisdom in the ambiguity. We the don't know. Yeah. We actually do not know. And <laughs> one of the things about Shakespeare is you'll never get him on a talk show. That's right. You'll never be able to ask him those questions. And that means that he's infinitely interpretable because the author will not step out and say that that isn't what I meant at all and I just, I hate this production uh, done in, a, in an abattoir, you know. I just think this is the worst possible taste. Right, 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 right. I, I do not want it done that way and I forbid you to do, do that. As an author, would you prefer to be in that situation to having to explain what would you I prefer to be a, yeah, the like situation Shakespeare. of leaving well, there, it There's to a the... price to be paid for being like Shakespeare. You have to be dead. Now, <laughs> right, <I> could, right. <laughs> Good point. I could be like Thomas Pynchon, but I didn't start soon enough. Mm. You know, if you're going to be like Thomas Pynchon, whom nobody actually knows uh, who he is or where he's living right. and what he looks like, right. um, you have to start from the beginning. That's right. Because otherwise, and especially in this day and age of ferreting out people's secret identities, you will have left enough clues so that they would find you quite quickly. Or you turn into Salinger, who everyone has an opinion about what a kook he must be for having disappeared at the height of his powers or something. Right? Yeah, and then we get people in the at the time writing a book about what a kook he was because they actually got into the inner sanctum. Right. Yeah, he was a kook. <laughs> what can I say? Right, right. And we all, we all grew up on Salinger. We loved Salinger. Yeah. And, and in a way, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter what a kook a person is. Right, the books. Uh, unless their kookiness has been fully embodied in their in their work, and if it's malevolent kookiness, then we don't like it. Right, right. Yeah, in the case of Salinger, I don't think that's... No, no, that's it wasn't. I, case, I think he yeah. was probably quite depressed. Shall we, let's move on to the second part of the show now, where we have, as we have sadly limited time, where we go into these surprise clips that I have mm -hmm. no idea what yeah, they let's are. Let's see the surprise clips. All right. So I'll start at the, at the bottom here. Have these been here. submitted by readers? These are, no, these are yeah. chosen by our video team who know the archives really well. Okay. So this first one, Michael Schatz, computational biologist and computer scientist. My interests in, in cloud computing relate to kind of this data analysis, data discovery problem of being able to scan through very large volumes of DNA sequences. A lot of the technologies that were developed for cloud computing were actually entirely invented in other disciplines. So in particular, large-scale internet companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter have, have developed these technologies out of necessity. Storing data in the cloud opens up a lot of other challenges. In particular, there's a lot of privacy concerns, 
about making sure that that data is, is really well guarded. Your genome is your, has a lot of information about who you are, what sort of diseases you're susceptible to. Could say a lot about your family, about your children, about your ancestors. You know, it's, it's precious information that we, that we definitely don't want to expose without giving it some consideration. So the concern is, is if, if all of this genetic information is in the cloud and you're not careful about how that data is protected, it could leak out, it could accidentally be exposed to other people. And then also, if big archives are made that has collected many thousands of people, this could suddenly become an attractive target. So today, we're a little bit guarded in the sense that this genetic information is decentralized in many different labs, so that if there's a breach at one lab, it's, it's relatively localized. If everything gets aggregated together, it becomes a little bit more risky because it becomes a little bit more attractive as a target. I think these challenges can be overcome. The encryption technologies, the authentication technologies, they exist. And there are companies that run with the highest level of security at, at Amazon Cloud and other cloud resources. It is, it is certainly possible to do so. But we, we just got to be so certain that we get it right on the first try. Right? We don't want to create this big database that has all this genetic information and then accidentally leave it vulnerable. So we just have to be really careful about how that's engineered. We can come out into this from any angle. Did, is, there, is there something in there that struck you that you'd want to begin with, or shall I, I either way? Well, it's the aggregation of genetic information, basically, and how, yeah. you, how you store it. All right, so let's pretend there's a presidential election of the future going on, and that the contestant's DNA is stored. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> somebody hacks into it mm -hmm. and says, you know, candidate X comes from a long line of crazy people and alcoholics. I mean, it could really be used against you. Although, actually, come to think of it, I, I wonder whether there might be some sort of um, egalitarian effect where everyone, if you have everyone's genome and you're able to really understand, it there, there are skeletons used. in everyone's closet. Uh, you know? Yeah, but if you're hiring somebody, for instance, in a, in a corporation and you have the genetic information of everybody available, you're going to be making your choices partly on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess what I'm saying is very like, unfair. if you go far enough, if you look closely enough at, the, at any genome, I wonder whether you find some horrors, you know, madness somewhere yeah. in the family, tendency Maybe toward... in the family, but maybe not in that particular person. Right, right, right. So that, okay. is, that would be one of the hazards. Mm. Uh, one of the pluses is, and they, they did a show like this in, in England in which they got a bunch of people in the room and asked them where they were from, and they all said they were from England. Right. Or some of them said they were from France and that they had always been from France and that their families and so forth had always been from England or France. And then they ran their genomes and found that they were related to, you know, people that they had claimed to dislike, such as Muslims, or maybe they were related to an African. And there were some huggy-kissy scenes in which people in, in this study group found out that they were cousins, which they had never known. Wow. So it can be a very me part of human race type of experience right. rather than me always have been a white member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, so, so it could have that kind of benefit. That kind of benefit, but I, I think like all of these, like any human technology we make, it's a double-edged tool and, and that goes for 
Actually, I say triple-edged because there's the good edge, the bad edge, and the stupid edge that you hadn't even anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think about that, you know, in terms of you, like you're an early adopter of some technologies. You have created a that long pen thing, and you have a Still company. Still up and running. Up and running. You want to see it, you go to a website called Syngraphy, S-Y-N-G-R-A. FFI.com. So for the audience, that's a pen that you can use remotely, like you can control okay, it across so the internet. Okay, so it's a beam-me-up Scotty moment. <laughs> Scotty made Captain Kirk turn into little pixels, and he disappeared from wherever he was. Remember that? Yes. It was like Tinkerbell. We actually, um, actually, um, William Shatner was on, is on today's oh, episode okay. of this show. Yeah, so, so he pixelated. <laughs> And then he reappeared in another place, right. usually the Starship Enterprise. So this is what the long pen is. It's the first beam-me-up Scotty moment in which a thing disappears at its moment of origin, namely right. whatever you're writing, and reappears in, in either physical or stored digital form somewhere else. So, gotcha. that's, that's so we, one would physically see the handwriting? You can do that, yeah. or you can store all of that and produce, if you need a physical form of it, you can have it later. Right. And why would you need that? Because forensic document examiners cannot use digital handwriting. They, they cannot say whether it's authentic or not. Gotcha. But they can do that with physical, and the physical thing that the long pens and graphy system does is whatever you did at the originating end. It actually captures the fine motor. It captures motor everything. In, in precise Absolutely detail. everything. So to the bigger, the other point here, you are also an environmentalist. You care very much about nature. You care about animals. You, you write. Well, you I know, care about the survival of our species. Right, that too. Because if all the human beings die, there won't be any more Shakespeare. And yet you are not right. And yet you're not like a, rom, a romanticist in the cla in the Blakeian sense. You mean in back that you're, to nature. You're not rejecting yeah technology. No, right? in fact, yeah. some of our fixes are going to have to come through technology. Uh -huh. So yes, we've made a mess. Yes, nature is inside you. You're breathing it in and out right now. <laughs> and at a moment when we run out of clean air with enough oxygen in it, drinkable water, and non-toxic food, we're, we're basically done. Right. That's us, gone us. So what you really don't want to have happen is to have the oceans die. I mean, there's a lot of other things you don't want to happen too, but if, if I had to make number one, mm -hmm. a number one, a list with numbers, um, uh, <laughs> I would, if we had I would to do put, triage. On, yeah, if we yeah. had to do triage, yeah. I would say don't kill the oceans because right. when you kill the oceans, you're killing the oxygen supply source for 60 to 80 percent of the oxygen we breathe. Gotcha. Should that disappear, you're going to be like somebody on the top, top of Mount Everest without an oxygen supply system, and you will get very, very stupid and eventually die. Right, or we'll have to rely on some guy from Silicon Valley to encase us all in a bubble You or know something. what? I don't think we're going to get there fast enough. Mm -hmm. Doubtless some rich people are preparing little oxygen bubbles for themselves. <laughs> right. But the rest of us, I'm afraid, are going to be... Um, out in the wind. <laughs> out in the oxygen the deprived wind. wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll still blow around. It'll just be full of methane. Right, right, right. As it was before those blue-green algae appeared and changed the atmosphere of the Earth, which once upon a time 
did not have oxygen in it. Okay. Look well, up the geology. Everything I tell you is true. Oh, I believe you. So I think in the interest of time, let's move to the second. Okay, let's see what and, he's got. And I think we'll wind it up with that one. Um, there are three that they gave us, um, yeah. but one of them is about Trump, and I don't want to talk about him anymore. I think anymore. we did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's, let's see this. This is Victoria Coates, who is... If they'd spent let me time in the Army, her. they would have kicked a lot of that out of him. <laughs> um, yeah, some form of time That's travel. That's not very Maybe good. We can send no, to not art. Not art is the best unifying force we have. That's so it's too contentious. Well, let's see what it says. So, no, I want to see the next one. What else have we got? We've got Trump. Is that it? We yeah. just got two more. Yeah, that, these are the other two options: narcissism and children. Oh, but it's Alison Gopnik, who is a very interesting person. So let's we can her. find an angle yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. Alison Gopnik was on this show. She's a developmental psychologist from okay. Berkeley. And um, let's see what she has to say about Donald Trump, narcissism, and children. It's all about him, that's yeah, what. Yeah, right. One of the things that we've discovered in the science is that children already have moral intuitions from the time they're extremely young. So even 14-month-olds will go out of their way to try to help someone else who's in trouble. And there's even some evidence that this is true for babies, for infants. So the old picture that we had about moral development was that children started out being these amoral, egocentric creatures, and then they had to be socialized into being moral or caring about other people. And that view is sort of exactly the opposite of the view that we have now. There was a column in the New York Times that said, oh, you know, someone like, uh, like Donald Trump is like a two-year-old. And I was extremely irritated, thought about writing a letter to say, that's a terrible insult to two-year-olds. Two-year-olds are not narcissistic and egocentric and only concerned with their, their own happiness. They have the potential for caring about other people, taking care of them. It's something that happens between being two and being grown up that makes the narcissists and the egotists of the world develop. That's a grown-up condition, not a condition of a two-year-old. And as a parent, the challenge is to try to give children information and encouragement for those natural tendencies towards altruism. Now, it has to be said that we have a lot of evidence that that natural tendency towards altruism, towards helping for others, being empathic to others, caring for others, seems to go hand in hand with a tendency to split people up into an in-group, the people that we're empathic for and take care of, and then an out-group, the others, and the others are the ones that we don't have to take care of. And those two things from an evolutionary perspective, even from a physiological neuroscience perspective, seem to go hand in hand. So the challenge for a parent is to say, give children a sense of encouraging that sense of belonging and caring about other people without also having a sense that you only do that for your group and you cannot care about the other group. Okay, so most people who go through being children are do that in the context of a large group of people. A large, well, in my terms, a large group of people. They go to preschool, right. they go to kindergarten, they go to school, they have a large group of neighbors and relatives, they see a lot of people. And at school, they often encounter pushback, bullying, exclusion, 
all those things that we know happen at school. Right. I'm, I'm kind of a weird test case because I did grow up in the woods, so I didn't, I didn't really have that much contact apart from family. Uh, immediate How family, many which family, is small. Like, I had an older brother. That was kind of it. Uh-huh. And my parents, of course. In a very remote part it of was, Ottawa or something? No, it was a remote. Ottawa is a city. It, it was a remote okay. part of... <laughs> Revealing my American oh, oh. ignorance. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Ottawa is where young Mr. Trudeau is situated ah. now. Oh, it's the locus of Mr. Trudeau with hair. Yes, he's a shining, shining knight to the, the world. He's, he's showing up very well by contrast at the moment. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> this, look on this picture, then on this. Yeah. Right, he explained quantum physics to the world and all well, sorts Well, I of think things. he had a bit of help. <laughs> yeah, but at least he was interested in explaining it. Um, so, anyway, yeah. Anyway, so the yes, woods. I was born in Ottawa, but then we were up in the, in the woods. So I actually didn't get a lot of the socialization that happens and the in-group and the out-group. I just, I didn't, I wouldn't have known what an out-group was. Was it a culture? So, what happened then? If and well, later. What happened when, when you I hit groups? civilization? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. it was a bit of a culture shock. <laughs> I have to say, why are people behaving like this? Why are they like this? I was a overly protective, helpful child. Huh. So I was the kind of child who would not eat their decorated bunny Easter cookie because I didn't want to make it gone. Okay. I wanted to take care of it. Okay. This could have. So you had a lot of empathy. I had nurturing a, feelings. A lot of empathy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think probably too much, too much for my own good. Hmm. Uh, but that, but I that got kicked out of me later on. So I'm I'm hard as nails now. But but gotcha. I still have a lot of problems with in groups and out groups. You know, these people and those people. Um, problems in what problems sense? Problems understanding. I, I do understand rationally why people do that. I don't quite grasp, unless you were terrified out of your mind, I can see why you would, why you would do that. And I'm sure that that's why human beings develop that capacity. You know, the, these people will be nice to you, those people won't. Right. So it's probably part of a survival thing. I grew up in the suburbs of DC and uh, in Maryland in a very like affluent middle, upper middle class neighborhood yeah. and was basically brought up with the notion that three quarters of DC was uninhabitable. Because it had black human. people in it. Yeah, that you'd be shot. You know? That you would be shot. Yeah, yeah. And, and as an adult... And young would you be shot? No. no. I mean, no. I mean, I, as a young adult, I, I moved into D.C. and I worked in D.C. Yeah. And, I, and I literally was amazed at age 20 or mm-hmm. something to drive around certain notorious neighborhoods mm-hmm. during the daytime and notice that people were just going about their business and not yeah. being shot, you know. Right. And that was an eye opener for me. I was like, really? Like, wh- what? What was the purpose of all that myth making? You know. Well, I think people. It, it comes out of people being genuinely scared, and doubtless your parents were telling you that because they were concerned for your safety. Sure, and, sure. And I think a lot of it, it comes out of that, uh, that we we want our children to be protected. We we don't want them. When in our day it was, you can't go down into the ravine because there are bad men down there. Right. So we never quite knew what those bad men would do, but of course we zizzed down to the ravine every chance we got. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't run the, through the storm sewer 
through the storm sewer we ran. Children, yeah. children will push the boundaries that way, but if children grow up in mixed communities, mm. they don't have these issues. They're likely to have issues when they find themselves in a monolithic, homogeneous situation where right. everybody is, is of one ilk, and they're likely to look around and say, where are the other people? You know, it is breaking my heart that time means we need to end this because I could be talking to you for a lot longer on these subjects, but Margaret Atwood, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. I, we have to draw a very abrupt line under it there. I'm sad. A pleasure. <laughs> thank you. And that's it for another episode of Think Again. I hope that all of you are having a wonderful autumn, especially those unfortunate people who are not blessed slash cursed with actual seasons like we are here in New York City and have to watch the leaves falling only on TV or in Meg Ryan movies. I had a random thought today as I was walking down Lexington Avenue that I wanted to share with you, which is that until somebody corners the market on objective truth, we should probably f table this phrase, telling it like it is. He tells it like it is, she tells it like it is. It doesn't really mean anything, does it? Anyway, we're back next week with New Yorker staff writer Jelani Cobb for a different angle and a different perspective on the kind of thing that I was talking about last week with Jody Picot and a couple of other surprising conversations with Jelani. Hope to see you then.